Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not, not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to, work, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and I am here starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Well, the parable of the wasteful is the meaning of prodigal. Um, son is familiar to all of us. When my brother had a chemist shop in East Sussex, a place called Roberts Bridge, uh, there was uh, an elderly gentleman who came to collect his prescription. And to the delight of my brother, this frail gentleman was Malcolm Muggridge. Uh, hands up how many people would remember Malcolm Muggridge? Well, yeah. Okay, that's good. And he gave my brother a book which he signed. And it was called Jesus Rediscovered. And this comment seized my attention. By now, Muggridge was uh, quite an elderly and rather frail in health. And this was the last book of many books that he wrote. He was the greatest cynic of his time and opponent of uh, Christian things and particularly the church. But this was the conclusion in the latter part of his life. I'll read it to you. I may, I suppose, regard myself for being a relatively successful man. That actually is an understatement. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the inland revenue. That's success, of which some of you know. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. 
That's pleasure. It might happen that once in a while, something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, fame, success, pleasure, fulfillment, multiply them by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Now that is one massive turnaround of something that most of his life, to his great regret that he sought to marginalize, became such an integral, vital part of his living and his dying. And that is but one little illustration of what Jesus is saying here of a family that are in crisis. And it's this whole parable of the prodigal son. It's part of one big parable, of course, of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Those of us who know the parable will know that the slight trick in this parable is we're not fully sure which son Jesus is talking about. The one that did nothing wrong, but did nothing else and lived a selfish life, or the one who did everything wrong and realized at a given time and rediscovered the heart of his father and comes home. So let's just have a quick look at this as we prepare to meet with the Lord around his table. There's four key words that summarize the parable for us. Lost, the word lost is used seven times. Found is used seven times. Rejoice, four times. And celebrate, four times. These are key words that try to weave together this story of the discovery of Jesus Christ as a Savior and Lord. Now, remember the context, because the context is always important. Here are people who are criticizing Jesus. You see in verse, uh, chapter 1 of verse 15, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, the criticism, it's in quotations, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You better believe it, Jesus says. And the rest is an affirmation of their criticism. That's why I've come. That's why I've come. And he uses these extremes often, doesn't he? The, the, the healthy don't need a doctor, only the sick. The sinful need a redeemer, not those who are self-righteous and self-sufficient. And that's the play on this family and the two sons. The one who comes to an awareness of his deep spiritual need and the other who doesn't. Let's try to weave these four words together very quickly uh, as we think about the generosity and love of God as it's revealed here 
in this parable. Four words that we weave together, which gives the thread of the story. The first is lost. You have it in verses 11 to 13. And here is is a rebellious son. According to Jewish law, the younger son would be entitled to one third of his father's estate by Jewish law. You'll find reference to that in Deuteronomy 21. However, within that culture, it was only after the death of the father. Only. Now, can you imagine that, strictly speaking, in terms of the culture and the law of that day, the younger brother, who was to be the beneficiary of a third of the estate, is saying something very powerful to his father. And it's this. You can't minimize this. I wish you were dead. Now that's a terrible thing for a parent to say, a child to say to a parent. Because it's only when you're dead will I get what I need and what I want. It's a very cruel, arrogant spirit. And as soon as he has his money, you see in verse 13, he now wants to put as much distance between himself and his father. And it's a distant country. And it's a way to do all that he wants to do. To get away to put as much space between himself and the influence of his home and his father. We know life is a cliché. The grass is not greener on the other side. It never is. And so, it's a summary. It doesn't go into the details. In verse 14, this statement is made after he'd spent everything. There was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. Very deep, profound need. No money, no status, no friends, no food. In a society like ours, it's hard to, it's hard to even think of that. I don't know if you've ever stopped and uh, talked to somebody who offers you the big issue. Maybe, maybe you should just do that once and say, um, what I did recently is, I actually don't want the big issue, but... Are you hungry? Yes. Then I'll get something for you to eat and, uh, and talk. Because even people like that, on the edge of society, sleeping rough, will seldom starve to death. Even there, in the extremity of where we're at in our society. But not so there. But the scene that Jesus is emphasizing is something greater than just physical need, which it is. What he's really saying here is this, that what sin does is it alienates and it isolates. It promises you so much and it gives you nothing. Nothing. Instead of freedom, he has the taste of slavery. Instead of success, failure. 
And when you get to verse 15, it's the ultimate indignity. This is the language of great exaggeration. Jesus often did that in order to make a point. Uh, for a Jew or for people of the Islamic faith, just to talk about pigs was an insult, much less to work with them. And it's something that is so disgusting. Culturally, socially, religiously, this is the bottom of the pile. You see what Jesus is doing? He's drawing people in. And he's answering the question, the criticism, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Exactly so. That's his rebellion. Now, there's a moment, look in verse 17, there's just a moment of reflection. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. That is the absolute basic of survival. Starving to death. And when he was rock bottom, and he comes to his senses, He's thinking in a different way. And so in verses 18, he says, he, this is his reflection. These are, he's sort of, if you like, sometimes you say he's externalizing thoughts. Okay? And here they are. I will set out, verse 18, and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. If you could look with kindness on me, make me like one of your hired men. But that's just his reflection. He actually hasn't done anything yet. Realizing his need is one thing. Now actually doing something about it is quite another and here he is poised at this position. I mean, how can he go back? Look at the shame he's brought on the family. What about the, the family business that will struggle? What about the neighbors? And most of all, families are funny things, aren't they? What about my big brother? There's the big issue. Realizing is one thing. Repenting is another. And so when you get to verse 20, the resolve is made. And so he got up and went to his father. There was the big struggle. Every step, as, as he was making his way back, how long did it take him? It was a distant country. How long? And every twist and turn in the road says, am I, is, am I really doing the right thing? Whatever's going to happen when I get home. And if, I'm sure that the devil would have followed him all the way and said, you're a fool. Stay where you are and make the best of things. Putting, changing your mind and putting thoughts into action is repentance. It's the point Tim was making, wasn't it? In coming to faith. Am I in Christ or am I in Adam? Where am I? And repenting says, I want to be found in Christ. Recognizing it. And coming to that spirit of repentance. Not just regretting it. But now, turning his back. 
turning to God. Not only changed his mind about himself now, but he begins to change his mind about his father. I doubt whether he'd even given any serious thought to his father at all. For the whole of life revolved around him. And this is more than remorse. I've messed up, but I won't do it again. It's more than that. And it's more than just a resolve. I, I, I won't make that mistake again. Here is a healthy, vigorous repentance to say, I need to be right with my father. I need to be right with him. And so I will set out and I will go back and I will say. Now, it is very interesting. It's only, you, 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 just, just try to, to read this and get, get the impact of this. So at verse 21, no, in verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. Now, to his surprise, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. It's no, it's no accident. His father was looking for him, waiting for him. And to his great surprise, his father is filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now the son said something. This is the, the important part. The father waited until the son said what was on his heart, which is what we call repentance. Father, I have sinned against heaven. That's a big sentence. But I've also sinned against you. That's a big sentence. And, and from where he is, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's enough. And at that point, the father interrupts him and says to the servants, quick. And, and the rest of the story, I, I guess you will know. So do you see these four words? A, a, a rebellious spirit. It's hard living in the home where there's such tension. Then a time of real heart searching and reflection. That's good, but it's not enough. Then a healthy repentance, a turning around and going back. And then we're ready to do one other thing. We're ready to rejoice. And so in verses 20 to 24, there it is, sort of 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you're no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, establish him as my son. Sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's feast and, and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead. Now he is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. A spirit of rejoicing and celebrating. Now, here is Jesus saying something quite staggering to the critics in verse 2. This is exactly why I've come. And your criticism of me is right. Absolutely right. Now, what are you going to do? And is the spirit of the Pharisee 
like the spirit of the elder brother who is so angry, who, who feels that he's earned the right to, to have all these things. Here is, of course, the great language of grace. Grace. The Father not only welcomed him, but prepared a feast. And this feast would have been a community thing with, with, with the neighbours and the farmers and the people coming round and saying, who is this? It is an affirmation of love that isn't just within the family. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so you have the picture, that wonderful gospel verse that God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. Repenting is believing. The son deserved death, literally in Jewish law, for what he did, bringing disgrace on the family. In Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 20, it says, such a son should be stoned. But grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. Because in the mindset of the people, when you bring disgrace on, on the family, you bring disgrace on the tribe. This is, this is monumental in terms of its generosity. God, who is rich in grace, in forgiving us as prodigals, that through the cross, this parable comes alive and drives home this one point of the great love of God that does one thing supremely in our lives. I wonder if you've noticed this. I know it's a familiar parable. And it's a difficult thing to define. Attitude is a difficult thing. But look in verse 12. The younger son said to his father, there it is, here's the, here's, it, it, it crystallizes this attitude. Give me. Give me. That's why I'm here. Give me. That's the spirit of the world all the time. Demanding my rights. Give me. Give me. It should be in bold letters. And it is a, a sinful attitude. But the turning point, look in verse 19. He says, make me. Make me. How often do we say, not only in coming to faith, but living out our faith, that our attitude to one another and to God is either our best friend or our worst enemy. What is your attitude now you come to the Lord's table? What is it? Give me what I want. Or make me what you want. And that is the powerful love of God. Powerful love of God as revealed in this wonderful parable. 